Chapter 11 The Diet of Augsburg, Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley, Llano County, Texas, USA. The Life of Philip Melanchthon by Carl Frederick Lederhose. Translated by Gottlieb Frederick Crotel, 1826-1907 The Diet of Augsburg, Part 3 After the confession had been presented to the emperor, different opinions were held by their enemies as to the course that must be pursued. Faber, Compegius, and others of like stamp, who endeavored to influence the emperor, insisted upon the execution of the Edict of Worms. Others wished the confession to be examined by impartial men, whilst others again demanded a written refutation of the confession. The last opinion prevailed. But at the same time it was also declared that the emperor should decide in this manner, in default of which the whole should be postponed until the calling of a general council. In regard to this latter point, Luther wrote to Melanchthon on the 9th of July, quote, You see that our cause is now in the same position as it was with me in Worms, namely, that they require us to accept the emperor as judge. Thus does the devil ever fiddle upon one string, and the old conjurer has nothing he can oppose to Christ but this single helpless weapon. Notwithstanding all these exhortations, Melanchthon was still anxiously engaged in finding a middle path. Thus he considered it advisable to write to Cardinal Campegius in order to lead to thoughts of peace. He did not reflect that this man, although of a smooth exterior, was nevertheless a viper, swollen with venom. The crafty Roman endeavored to instill the most odious thoughts into the mind of the emperor. This evil, he remarked, could be cured. The emperor should unite himself with the well-meaning princes and change the sentiments of the others by promises or threats. But what is to be done if they remain obstinate? We have the right to destroy these poisonous plants with fire and sword. If we gain the mastery over them, we can appoint holy inquisitors. The University of Wittenberg can be excommunicated. The books of the heretics can be burned, and the like. It was needful to strike a decisive blow in the beginning. With such a man, Melanchthon, of course, without knowing his true character, entered into negotiations. After an humble letter, Compegius sent for the writer. Let us hear Beat Winsheim, Melanchthon's friend and eulogist, relate the particulars of the interview. Quote, the day after, when the whole company was assembled, Philip was summoned, who enters with a firm mind. He saw himself surrounded by a circle of serpents and devils, and, like the prophet Jonah, 
shaken alone in the belly of the whale. Compegius is importunate and flourishes the terrible lightnings of his highly enraged and cruel Jupiter. The others vehemently threaten the poor and small flock of the helpless sheep of Christ with the power and force of so many kingdoms. It was enough to terrify even a strong and courageous man. But when Philip was asked whether they would yield, he replied, quote, we cannot yield nor forsake the truth. But if we pray for God's and Christ's sake, that our adversaries will not think hardly of us, and will dispute with us as they are able, i.e., would yield that to us which we cannot forsake with a good conscience. When Compegius heard this, he shrieked, quote, I cannot, I cannot, because the key does not err. To this thundering, although Philip stood, as it were, in the midst of lions, wolves, and bears, who would have torn him in pieces without punishment, yet having a great and glorious spirit and a little body, he now boldly replied, quote, We commend our cause to the Lord God. If God be for us, who can be against us? And finally, come what will, we must abide by our fortune or misfortune. Melanchthon had frequent interviews with the cardinal after this, especially as the Protestant princes believed that they might accomplish some good in this way. It is true some have maintained that Melanchthon was willing to agree to a base accommodation, but this cannot be proved. However, this much is certain, that all mediations were ineffectual. How true is Luther's word in a letter to Melanchthon on the 13th of July, quote, I should think, dear Master Philip, that you have by this time sufficiently learned by your own experience that Christ and Belial cannot be united by any means whatever, and that no unity in religion is to be thought of. While this was transpiring, the Catholic theologians were busily engaged with the task laid upon them by the emperor in refuting the confession of the Protestants. He had recommended moderation to them when the first draft had exhibited too great a violence. The Catholic theologians who were preparing the refutation were Eck, Faber, Wimpina, Cochleus, and others. The last one composed it. What good thing could be expected of these men? Melanchthon therefore remarks in a letter to Camerarius, quote, I hear that the refutation is finished and will make its appearance in two or three days. It is said that the emperor will order all things to remain as they were, until these disputes shall be examined in a council. This is to be the end of the deliberations, and if this decree is not tempered, you may easily conceive what troubles will be the consequence. At last, after having awaited it for a long time, the princes and electors were summoned on the 3rd of August to hear the 
confutation of the Augsburg Confession. This document follows the same order as the Confession. It first treats of doctrines in 21 articles, and afterwards of abuses in 7 articles. Although it acknowledged many things in doctrine, as agreeing with the Catholic Church, it did not depart in the slightest degree from Roman principles, and strictly adhered to the abuses. In the article on original sin, it did not acknowledge the prevailing corruption, and in the article of good works, it maintained that the good works which are performed by the help of divine grace are meritorious. It also refuses to allow that faith alone justifies. In the article on repentance, it insists upon satisfaction which man is to pay, whilst the confession excludes all human satisfaction. The confutation likewise finds fault with the Lutherans, because they deny that we can by our works earn forgiveness of sins, and also because they reject the adoration of the saints. It is not willing to grant the cup to the laity, and defends this position with the most absurd reasons. It adheres to the celibacy of the priests and monks, and maintains the mass with all its anti-scriptural characteristics. In short, it will not cast aside any abuses. The emperor really regarded this untenable production as a refutation of the confession of the Protestants, and gave these to understand that it was his will that they should compromise matters with the other Christian states, and should not separate themselves from the general Christian church. If this should not take place, which the emperor did not expect, he should act as it became him, as the guardian and protector of the Holy Christian Church, and as a true Christian emperor. Melanchthon speaks of this in a letter to Luther, August 6th, quote, This was the sum and substance of it, which, although it seemed very harsh, yet as the confutation was executed in a very childish manner, our friends became quite cheerful after it was read, for this confutation is the paragon of all the childish and foolish writings of Faber. In speaking of the two kinds, he referred to the history of the sons of Eli, that they would ask the priest for a piece of bread, and proved from this that laymen should only receive the bread. The mass has been defended by particularly bald and lame tricks. The princes requested a copy of the confutation after it had been read, but could not obtain it. Even if the emperor had now been inclined to act severely, a quarrel arose in the midst of the Catholic camp, because they could not agree among themselves in regard to the steps that should now be taken. At last the views of the more moderate prevailed, that a delegation should be appointed on both sides, in order to effect a compromise. On the 6th of August, several Catholic princes and bishops assembled to agree upon the points of convention. On the following day, the elector Joachim of Brandenburg informed the Lutherans that they should drop their erroneous views 
and no longer separate themselves from the Catholic Church. Even if there were some abuses, they might be done away with by the assistance of the Pope. And now ensued answers and replies in great number. The Lutherans would not entertain the yielding propositions of Melanchthon, who believed that unity in doctrine might be secured, and only wished to insist upon the two kinds, marriage of the priests and the evangelical mass. The evangelical states declared that they did not intend to retreat from the word of God, although they were inclined to maintain peace and harmony. Philip, the landgrave of Hesse, was not at all satisfied with this course of things. He was opposed to yielding in the slightest degree, and said to his counselors in a letter dated August 24th, quote, If the papists wish to remain sitting in their devil's roses, and will not permit the pure preaching of the truth of the gospel, nor freedom of marriage, nor the sacraments according to Christ's institution, why then you shall not yield one hair's breadth. Much less still are we to allow the jurisdiction of the bishops, because they do not permit the gospel to be preached nor practised in their dominions. And because he hated the yielding of Melanchthon, he added, quote, Stop the game of that subtle philosopher Philip. End quote. Such were the sentiments of the Landgrave, and therefore he could no longer contain himself in Augsburg, but suddenly and unexpectedly to all, left the city August 6th. This excited great attention. However, the proposed plan to bring about an accommodation by means of a committee of fourteen persons, including the evangelical theologians Melanchthon, Brenz, and Schnepf, and the Catholics Eck, Wimpina and Cochleus was not prevented by it. They met together from the 16th of August until the 21st. On motion of Chancellor Vihus of Baden, the Augsburg Confession was examined article after article. They agreed in many articles, but in justification Eck would not admit that we are justified by faith alone for that would make rude, wicked, and impious men. Love justifies more than faith, because he did not like the word sola, which means alone. He perpetuated the wretched witticism, quote, Let us for the present send the souls to the cobbler, end quote. However, he found Melanchthon a man who stood immovable in the main point. Whenever the two theologians grew somewhat passionate, the princes present entreated them to maintain peace. Although they agreed in many points of doctrine, there were others, such as justification, repentance, etc., in which they could not agree, and when they came to the abuses, their opponents would not allow the two kinds the marriage of priests, and the mass. There were in all fourteen points on which they could not unite. On August 22nd, Melanchthon wrote to Luther, quote, Yesterday we finished the conference, or rather dispute, before the commissioners, quote. 
After having referred to the opposition to justification, satisfaction, the merit of good works, and the two kinds in the sacrament, he thus concludes, quote, I do not know where this will end, for, although peace is also necessary to our enemies, yet it seems to me that some do not consider what great danger there will be if this matter ends in war. We propose very reasonable conditions. We have given authority and jurisdiction to the bishops, and have promised that we would re-establish the usual ceremonies. I do not know what we shall accomplish by it. Pray to Christ to preserve us. Luther was not satisfied with these compromises, and among other things replied thus, quote, Summa summarum, I do not like it at all that you are endeavoring to treat the unity of doctrine, because this is entirely impossible, unless the Pope is willing to abolish the entire papacy. It would have been sufficient for us to have shown the reasons of our faith and to have demanded peace. But how can we hope to convert them to the truth? End quote and concluded thus, quote, Why do we not perceive that all they are attempting is mere deception and fraud? For you are not able to say that their acts are prompted by the Holy Ghost, for they have neither repentance, faith, nor the fear of God. But may the Lord, who began this matter, finish his work in you. To him I heartily commend you. End, quote. End of chapter 11, part 3. Recording by Bill Mosley, Llano County, Texas, USA.